Section 22 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 56 begins with Soldan, ends with Prester John, Part 2. The House of Lords, too, abandoned about this time one of their ancient usages, the custom of voting by proxy. A select committee of the peers had recommended that the practice should be discontinued. It was defended, of course, as every antiquated and anomalous practice is sure to be defended. It was urged, for example, that no man can be better qualified to understand the great political questions of the day than members of the House of Peers who are employed in the diplomatic service abroad, and that it is unfair to exclude these men from affirming their opinion by a vote, even though they cannot quit their posts and return home to give the vote in person. This small grievance, if it were one, was very properly held to be of little account when compared with the obvious objections to the practice. The House of Lords, however, were not willing absolutely and forever to give up the privilege. They only passed a standing order that the practice of calling for proxies on a division be discontinued, and that two days' notice be given of any motion for the suspension of the order. It is not likely that any attempt will be made to suspend the order and renew the obsolete practice. The government ventured this year on the bold but judicious step of acquiring possession of all the lines of telegraph and making the control of communication by wire a part of the business of the post office. They did not succeed in making a very good bargain of it, and for a time the new management resulted in the most distracting confusion but the country highly approved of the purchase. The post office has long been one of the best-managed departments of the civil service. An important event in the year's history, 1868, was the successful conclusion of the expedition into Abyssinia. We have already mentioned that much alarm had long been felt in the country with regard to the fate of a number of British subjects, men and women, who were held in captivity by Theodore, king of Abyssinia. A vague, mysterious interest hung around Abyssinia. It is a land which claims to have held the primitive Christians, and to have the bones of St. Mark among its treasury of sacred relics. It held fast to the Christian faith according to its own views of that faith, when Egypt flung it aside after the Arab invasion. The Abyssinians trace the origin of their empire back to the time of Solomon, when the Queen of Sheba visited him. The emperor or king of Abyssinia was the Prester John, the mysterious king-priest of the Middle Ages. If Sir John Mandeville may be accepted as any authority, that traveller avers that the title of Prester John rose from the fact that one of the early kings of Abyssinia went with a Christian knight into a Christian church in Egypt, and was so charmed with the service that he vowed he would thenceforth take the title of priest. He further declared that Ewald av the nam of the first priest that went out of the Kirche, and his nam was John. A traveller whom not a few were disposed to class with Sir John Mandeville brought back to Europe in a later day some marvellous tales of the Abyssinians. An advertisement prefixed to the third volume of Buffon's History of Birds acknowledges 
the free and generous communication which i had of the drawings and observation of mr james bruce who returning from numidia and the interior parts of abyssinia stayed in my house for several days and made me a partaker of the knowledge which he had acquired in a tour no less fatiguing than hazardous the publication of bruce's travels in abyssinia excited an interest which was further inflamed by the fierce controversy as to the accuracy of his statements and descriptions some at least of bruce's most disputed assertions have been confirmed since his day by the observations of other travellers the curiosity as to the land of prester john was revived for modern times by bruce and the controversy bruce called up and in addition to the public anxiety on account of the english prisoners there was in england a certain vague expectation of marvellous results to come of a military expedition into the land of ancient mystery among the captives in theodore's hands was captain cameron her majesty's consul at massowa with his secretary and some servants mr hormuz rassam a syrian christian and naturalized subject of the queen lieutenant Prideau and dr blanc these men were made prisoners while actually engaged on official business of the english government and the expedition was therefore formally charged to recover them but there were several other captives as well whom the commander-in-chief was enjoined to take under his protection there were german missionaries and their wives and children some of the women being english some teachers artists and workmen all european the quarrel which led to the imprisonment of these people was of old standing some of the missionaries had been four years in duress before the expedition was sent out to their rescue in april eighteen sixty five lord chelmsford had called the attention of the house of lords to the treatment which certain british subjects were then receiving at the hands of theodore the negus or supreme ruler of abyssinia theodore was a usurper few eastern sovereigns who have in any way made their mark on history from harun al-rashid and saladin downwards can be described by any other name than that of usurper theodore seems to have been a man of strong barbaric nature a compound of savage virtue and more than savage ambition and cruelty he was a sort of wild and barbarous philip of macedon he was open to passionate and lasting friendships his nature was swept by stormy gusts of anger and hatred his moods of fury and of mildness came and went like the thunderstorms and calms of a tropic region he had had a devoted friendship for mr plowden a former english consul at massawa who had actually lent theodore his help in putting down a rebellion and was killed by the rebels in consequence when theodore had crushed the rebellion he slaughtered more than a hundred of the rebel prisoners as a sacrifice to the manes of his english patroclus captain cameron was sent to succeed mr plowden it should be stated that neither mr plowden nor captain cameron was appointed consul for any part of abyssinia massawa is an island off the african shore of the red sea it is in turkish ownership and forms no part of abyssinia although it is the principal starting point to the interior of that country from egypt and the great outlet for abyssinian trade 
Consuls were sent to Massawa according to the terms of Mr. Plowden's appointment in 1848, for the protection of British trade with Abyssinia and with the countries adjacent thereto. Mr. Plowden, however, had made himself an active ally of King Theodore, a course of proceeding which naturally gave great dissatisfaction to the English government. Captain Cameron, therefore, received positive instructions to take no part in the quarrels of Theodore and his subjects, and was reminded by Lord John Russell that he held no representative character in Abyssinia. It probably seemed to Theodore that the attitude of England was altered and unfriendly, and thus the dispute began which led to the seizure of the missionaries. Captain Cameron seems to have been much wanting in discretion, and Theodore suspected him of intriguing with Egypt. Theodore wrote a letter to Queen Victoria requesting help against the Turks, and for some reason the letter remained unanswered. A story went that Theodore cherished a strong ambition to become the husband of the Queen of England, and even represented that his descent from the Queen of Sheba made him not unworthy of such an alliance. Whether he ever put his proposals into formal shape or not, it is certain that misunderstandings arose, that Theodore fancied himself slighted, and that he wrecked his wrongs by seizing all the British subjects within his reach and throwing them into captivity. They were put in chains and kept in Magdala, his rock-based capital. Consul Cameron was among the number he had imprudently gone back into abyssinia from massawa and was at once pounced upon by the furious descendant of prester john the english government had a difficult task before them it seemed not unlikely that the first movement made by an invading expedition might be the signal for the massacre of the prisoners the effect of conciliation was therefore tried in the first instance Mr. Rassam, who held the office of assistant British resident at Aden, a man who had acquired some distinction under Laird in exploring the remains of Nineveh and Babylon, was sent on a mission to Theodore with a message from Queen Victoria. Lieutenant Prideau and Dr. Blanc were appointed to accompany him. Theodore played with Mr. Rassam for a while and then added him and his companions to the number of the captives. Theodore seems to have become more and more possessed with the idea that the English government were slighting him, and one or two unlucky mishaps or misconceptions gave him some excuse for cherishing the suspicion in his jealous and angry mind. At last, an ultimatum was sent by Lord Stanley, demanding the release of the captives within three months on penalty of war. This letter does not seem to have ever reached the king's hands, the government made preparations for war and appointed Sir Robert Napier, now Lord Napier of Magdala, then commander-in-chief of the army of Bombay, to conduct the expedition. A winter sitting of Parliament was held in November 1867. Supplies were voted and the expeditionary force set out from Bombay. The expedition was well managed. Its work was, if we may use a somewhat homely expression, done to time. The military difficulties were not great, but the march had to be made across some four hundred miles of a mountainous and roadless country. The army had to make its way, now under burning sun, and now amid storms of rain and sleet, 
through broken and perplexing mountain gorges and over mountain heights ten thousand feet above the sea level anything like a skilful resistance even such resistance as savages might well have been expected to make would have placed the lives of all the force in the utmost danger the mere work of carrying the supplies safely along through such a country was of itself enough to keep the energies of the invading army on the utmost strain meanwhile the captives were dragging out life in the very bitterness of death the king still oscillated between caprices of kindness and impulses of cruelty he sometimes strolled in upon the prisoners in careless undress perhaps in european shirt and trousers without a coat and he cheerily brought with him a bottle of wine which he insisted on the captives sharing with him at other times he visited them in the mood of one who loved to feast his eyes on the anticipatory terrors of victims he had determined to destroy he had still great faith in the fighting power of his abyssinians sometimes he was in high spirits and declared that he longed for an encounter with the invaders at other moments however and when the steady certain march of the english soldiers was bringing them nearer and nearer he seems to have lost heart and become impressed with a boding conviction that nothing would ever go well with him again one description given of him as he looked into the gathering clouds of an evening sky and drew melancholy auguries of his own fate makes him appear like a barbaric antony watching the rack dislimb and likening its dispersion to his own vanishing fortunes sir robert napier arrived in front of magdala in the beginning of april eighteen sixty eight one battle was fought on the tenth of the month perhaps it ought not to be called a battle it is better to say that the abyssinians made such an attack on the english troops as a bull sometimes makes on a railway train in full motion the abyssinians attacked with wild courage and spirit the english weapons and the english discipline simply swept the assailants away others came on wild charges were made again and again five hundred abyssinians were killed and three times as many wounded not one of the english force was killed and only nineteen men were wounded then theodore tried to come to terms he sent back all the prisoners who at last found themselves safe and free under the protection of the english flag but theodore would not surrender sir robert napier had therefore no alternative but to order an assault on his stronghold magdala was perched upon cliffs so high and steep that it was said a cat could not climb them except at two points one north and one south at each of which a narrow path led up to a strong gateway the attack was made by the northern path and despite all the difficulties of the ascent the attacking party reached the gate forced it and captured magdala those who first entered found theodore's dead body inside the gate defeated and despairing he had died in the high roman fashion by his own hand the rock fortress of king theodore was destroyed by the conqueror sir robert napier was unwilling to leave the place in its strength because he had little doubt that if he did so it would be seized upon by a fierce mohammedan tribe the bitter enemies of the abyssinian christians he therefore dismantled and destroyed the place nothing to use his own language but blackened rock remains of what was magdala 
the expedition returned to the coast almost immediately in less than a week after the capture of magdala it was on its march to the sea on june twenty first the troop ship crocodile arrived at plymouth with the first detachment of troops from abyssinia nothing could have been more effectively planned conducted and timed than the whole expedition it went and came to the precise moment appointed for every movement like an express train that was its great merit warlike difficulties it had none to encounter no one can doubt that such difficulties too had they presented themselves would have been encountered with success the struggle was against two tough enemies climate and mountain and sir robert napier won he was made baron napier of magdala and received a pension the thanks of both houses of parliament were voted to the army of abyssinia and its commander it was on this occasion that mr disraeli delivered that astonishing burst of eloquence which for the hour turned the attention of the country away from lord napier's triumph and almost succeeded in making the capture of magdala seem ridiculous lord napier mr disraeli declared had led the elephants of india bearing the artillery of europe through african passes which might have startled the trapper of canada and appalled the hunter of the alps and he wound up by proclaiming that the standard of st george was hoisted upon the mountains of rosselas all england smiled at the mountains of rosselas the idea that johnson actually had in his mind the very abyssinia of geography and of history when he described his happy valley was in itself trying to gravity of the rhetorical passage it is proper to speak in the words with which the author of rosselas once interrupted the too ambitious eloquence of a friend sir this is sorry stuff said dr johnson let me not hear you say it any more the worst of mr disraeli's burst of eloquence was that it could not be got rid of so easily the orator himself might have gladly consented to let it be heard no more but the world would not so willingly let it die ever since that time when the expedition to abyssinia is mentioned in any company a smile steals over some faces and more than one voice is heard to murmur an allusion to the mountains of rosselas the widow of king theodore died in the english camp before the return of the expedition theodore's son alamayu aged seven years was taken charge of by queen victoria and for a while educated in india the boy was afterwards brought to england but he never reached maturity all the care that could be taken of him here did not keep him from withering under the influence of an uncongenial civilization his young life was as that of some exotic that will not long bear the transplantation to a foreign air doubtless too the premature tumult and troubles of his early years told heavily against him there is little difficulty says the grim leech in the fair maid of perth in blighting a flower exhausted from having been made to bloom too soon no attempt was made to interfere with the internal affairs of abyssinia having destroyed their monarchy the invaders left the abyssinians to do as they would for the establishment of another sir robert napier declared one of the chiefs a friend of the british and this chief had some hopes of obtaining the sovereignty of the country but his rank as a friend of the british did not prevent him from being defeated in a struggle with a rival 
and this latter not long after succeeded in having himself crowned king under the title of john the second another prester john was set up in abyssinia End of section twenty two